but you're not really going to need it. I grew up in the 60s, and I kick against the goads of authority. So I'm doing my own thing here. <laughs> Sorry, Chris. And, uh, but it'll accomplish the same thing that he would want accomplished. But I'm taking a different track than the book. Um, you know, the Bible talks about uh, there is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. And you find that right from the beginning. The sacrificial system, you can find it right it, it, starting in Genesis 3, really. Remember Adam and Eve sin. Until that point, they had a perfect relationship with God. They walked with God. There was nothing in between them and the Lord. And then they, you know, Eve takes the whatever fruit it was and gives it to Adam. And then suddenly their eyes are open and it says they were naked. Well, they were already naked. But now they realize what that really means. The Hebrew word means they were totally, their whole soul was exposed. And what comes with that? Anybody remember what? Adam and Eve experienced for the first time ever? Shame. It was shame, yeah, but something else. It begins with an F. Fear. This is the introduction of fear into uh, the human race. And, you know, if you think about it, life is all about making a choice every day whether you and I are going to live by fear or faith. You can't live by both. And if you trace the phrase, do not be afraid, you'll find it hundreds of times from Genesis on through Revelation. I've heard somebody say, that's really the gospel in miniature. Do not be afraid. But we are afraid. And we're afraid because uh, our eyes have been opened to the reality of death and other things. And you'll remember um, when God pronounces the well, first he, he, he finds Adam and Eve hiding. And um, then when he calls them out, they immediately, you know, do the blame game. You know, Adam says, that, that woman you created gave me the apple. And she said, what is that snake? And it's been like that ever since. We, all, we rarely want to own up to our own misdeeds, our own sin. We want to blame it on somebody else, the way we were raised or potty trained or whatever, or the society around us, we don't want to own up. Uh, really, the Christian faith is all about realizing the truth of, of Romans, you know, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And uh, the editor of the London Times back in the early 20th century, he put a question out to all the readers, and he said he'd published the, the winning answer. And the question was, what's wrong with the world? And he got all these things coming back. The winning answer was by a lay theologian named G.K. Chesterton. And if you've never read Chesterton's little book, Orthodoxy, it is one of the great, and he's a master of the English language. C.S. Lewis uh, really was honed by Chesterton, uh, learning how to really turn a phrase. It sounds like a dull book, Orthodoxy, but it sings about the heart of the Christian faith. Anyway, Chesterton sent his thing in. It was the winning one. He published, the editor published it. What is wrong with the world? Chesterton wrote, I am, signed G.K. Chesterton. And that's 
really part of the gospel truth. That's part of the bad news of the gospel. What's wrong with the world? We are. Human beings, um, we mess up everything we, we touch. Um, scripture is crystal clear that the only way you and I can be washed of our sin is through the blood of Christ. And remember what happens when Adam and Eve are shamed and naked? What, what do they do to try to cover their nakedness? Remember what they did? They make little garments out of fig leaves or something. But then a lot of people jump over this and miss it. But it says that God actually made garments for them out of what? Animal skins. There's the introduction for the first time of death. And the death of an innocent animal due to Adam and Eve's sin. And that's the way it's been from there on out. And I'm, I was a pre-veterinary major in college, and I wanted to be a large animal. I love animals. And I read through the Bible every year, and I just uh, uh, finished uh, Numbers today. And uh, in Leviticus and Numbers, it goes into the sacrificial system. And a lot of times you, people just kind of skip over that. But if you really understand what's going on, it is gory. I mean, it talks about many, many bulls being slaughtered and the priest dumping the blood at the foot of the altar. Now, these guys are dressed in white, they're like good humor men, you know, uh, and blood splattering all over the place. And I don't like the idea of lambs being slaughtered. Um, why do you think God set up a sacrificial system like that? I mean, I don't like it. It's gory, it's gross. The innocent are suffering. That's the point. We don't take our sin seriously. Most of us don't. I don't most of the time. You know, there's a difference between uh, sin, S-I-N, all capital, and sins. You and I usually focus on our sins. I, you know, yelled at somebody, or I stole some money, or I did this, or I said that. And we tend to take that before God and ask forgiveness for. But there's something more heinous than any sins that you and I commit. And that's sin with a capital S. And you've heard me ask this question before, but I'll ask it again. Are you and I sinners because we sin, or do we sin because we're sinners? Anybody want to take a chance in being wrong in front of the class? This is really, if you don't get this, you'll never get the sacrificial system. You'll never get Jesus' death on the cross, what it really was all about. I'll give you the answer. You and I sin because we're sinners. It's our very nature. That's uh, what I'm doing. Is I'm describing the whole doctrine of original sin. That when Adam and Eve committed sin, that sin now has infected the entire human race. And nobody is born innocent except one person. That was Jesus. 
course, the Roman Catholics have to come up with the immaculate conception, you know, get Mary off the hook. But she was a sinner just like you and me. Um, Jesus is the only one totally sinless. But you and I are born into sin. David says that in the Psalms. I was in sin. My mother conceived me. And so it's in our very nature, and you can't get away from it. And you never will get away from it until you are in glory with Christ. Until then, as Martin Luther says, uh, we are uh, simul justus et peccator, that's Latin, simultaneously justified through the blood of Christ and still sinners at the same time. And that never changes. And so um, you've got to get this. Uh, we sin because we're sinners. And I found a quote in a book called The Valley of Vision. It's a collection of Puritan prayers. I read it years ago. But then a friend of mine who's a pastor in St. Louis sent me an email, and he put this under his name, and I, I, I never got it the first time I ever read it. And this is just a, about a month ago he did this, and it's totally changed my whole I mean, I've been a pastor for 43 years, and I'm just now getting this. Look at this. Let me never forget. This is a Puritan praying this. Let me never forget that the heinousness of sin lies not so much in the nature of, should be a, a the here, nature of the sin committed, as in the greatness of the person, with a capital P, sinned against. Do you see what this is saying? Let's say I go through my life and all I do is I steal a Snickers bar when I was 10. And that's the only sin I ever commit. If I'm not careful, or if I just do just a lot of, you know, low-grade, white-collar sinning and always confess and all that, I can get to the point where I feel like, you know, I'm, pretty good person. I know Christ died on the cross for my sins, but, you know, I didn't really need that as much as, you know, like Adolf Hitler needs it, or name your uh, tyrant, or you know, Jeffrey Dahmer, or Al Capone, or something. Um, but let's say all I ever did was steal a Snickers bar. That's not that big a deal, is it? Or is it? That little sin, God is infinitely holy, righteous, perfect. Putting that one tiny sin against him magnifies that sin infinitely. And you're in the same boat. If you only, Mother Teresa's in the same boat with Adolf Hitler. And you and I are in the same boat, too. Because that capital S-I-N, our very nature is now up against this holy, infinitely holy God who cannot tolerate one tiny bit of sin. And so all our sins are magnified infinitely as they come against this God. I don't know about you, but that made me realize, whoa, I need Christ a whole lot more than I ever realized. Um, 
I describe myself as an abject sinner. That's usually to impress you with my humility. Now I really, I really believe it. And, you know, I have no hope uh, unless somebody does. You know, we try to atone for these little white-collar sins by going to church and getting a Bible study and giving money to the church and doing good deeds, hoping that God's going to go, oh, you know, boys will be boys. And I understand. And you're really a good guy. No, God looks at you and me, even in our tiniest sin, and is to- not totally repulsed. Here, here's the irony of God. Is he, he is repulsed by our sin and yet unconditionally loves us at the same time. You know, the Old Testament ends with a quandary. Here it is. And the New Testament answers this quandary. How can sinful human beings ever stand in the presence of a holy God? Now, the sacrificial system, God institutes it to help human beings along the trail of sin toward redemption. But if you understand the sacrificial system, it's penultimate. They had to make these sacrifices every day. Bulls and lambs and pigeons and doves are being slaughtered by the priests, uh, some to cover the corporate sin of the nation of Israel, some to cover personal sins. If you did a certain sin, you brought a whatever, and they sacrifice it. And, and the blood and guts is just flying all the time. It ought to repulse us. I have friends who say, I could never believe in God because look what he does here in the Old Testament. Well, that's spoken by a person that doesn't understand how bad things are, how bad their sin is. And I, I still, I don't like all those innocent animals that suffered, but that's the reality of your sin and mine. You know, people say, well, between two consenting adults, uh-uh. Every sin is against God. And innocent people suffer from our sin. We don't even know it. A couple weeks ago, I was out in Uvalde to visit with Gary Patterson, our member who's the school district superintendent. Uh, Treep Sasser and I went out there, out there to pray for him, lay hands on him, anoint him with oil, and pray God's protection around him. And I learned something that day. I, I, I may have said this a couple weeks ago in here, and it really made me angry. Um, the day of the shooting, I was really surprised by how quickly the Texas State Troopers were there. The DPS was right there. And remember, there was confusion about who was in control. You had the school district cop there. Then you had the sheriff, New Valley Sheriff. Then you had Border Patrol agents were there right away. Wow, those guys are good. And the DPS was there. I thought, I know those guys were good. But how did they get there so quick? Gary said, uh, that's because um, way before, the, for the last year and a half, we've had two to three school lockdowns a week before the shooting because Uvalde happens to be the crossroads when people come across our southern border, particularly those that are picked up by coyotes on our side who then take them somewhere and the Border Patrol sees it happening. They chase them, and they're flying through Uvalde at 120 miles an hour, shooting at the police. 
And so the DPS calls ahead, and they see them ahead, and they go, they're coming through, and they lock down the schools. So the reason the Border Patrol and the DPS were right on the scene is because that's the way it's been for a year and a half. They're always there in Uvalde. In fact, when Treves and I were driving home on Highway 90, I said, Treves, you can go 200 miles an hour down here. All the DPS cruisers are in Uvalde. Nobody's going to pull you over for speeding. I was joking, of course, but really, uh, there's DPS cruisers all over Uvalde every day. And um, here's my theory. If we didn't have an open border, the Border Patrol and the DPS wouldn't have been in Uvalde. And when the shooting started, that school district cop probably would have taken the guy out and less children. I, I can't prove that. The shooting would have still happened. But because nobody knew who was in charge, meanwhile, the guy's in there killing kids. And the sin of the southern border, whoever you want to blame that on, innocent children in Robb Elementary suffered because of that. And um, so, anyway. Some other references in Scripture to um, blood that's important. Um, Revelation 13, 8, uh, in the King James Version, talks about uh, the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. That's something else a lot of Christians don't understand. Um, it talks about you and me being chosen by God before the foundation of the world. Which means that if you become a Christian, it's not by accident. It's only because God thought of you and chose you before ever spun the first molecule of the universe off his fingertips. And that Revelation 13.8 also talks about those people... Uh, whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. So, um, when you become a Christian, your sinful nature makes you think, I, I figured this out, and I accomplished this. I understand it, and God's probably going, wow, I've been rooting for you. No, the only reason you and I ever choose Christ is because the Holy Spirit opens our eyes, our spiritually blind eyes, unstops our deaf ears, breaks open our hearts, and we choose Christ. Yes, you have to make a choice. But after you make that choice, turn around and look. You'll see, man, God was at work bringing me to this point. Um, but our sinful nature wants to take credit for it. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. This Old Testament sacrificial system was penultimate. It had to be done over, over, over again. It was never lasting. It was perpetual. I mean, it didn't, you know, seal the deal. It was perpetual over and over again. And it was prophetic in the sense it was prophesying a coming Messiah who would be the ultimate sacrifice. And that's, you know, the Passover, um, Chris, so I wasn't here last week, and he said, I really blew it. I didn't talk about the Passover last week, and I wanted to. Would you talk about the Passover, Ron? I said, sure. 
So if you remember when the Israelites are captive in Egypt and uh, God tells Moses, go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And Moses is going, are you kidding me? I'm supposed to go to the world's most powerful leader and tell him to release the whole basis of his economic system? Uh, you know, and he says, who should I say sent me? And that's when God, for the first time, really reveals his name. He says, we don't know how to pronounce it. It's the Hebrew tetragrammaton, four letters in Hebrew. Uh, we think it's pronounced Yahweh, but um, Hebrew letter, they don't have va vowels. There are no vowels in Hebrew language. They have vowel points under the letters, but there's no vowel points under the tetragrammaton. We think that it's the Hebrew form of the verb to be, I am. I am who I am. Um, if you ever get accosted by a Jehovah's Witness, I always like to tell them, do you know that the name Jehovah is not a real word? And I said, yeah. When English translators translated the Hebrew and they got to the Tetragrammaton, they said, you know, what are we going to do with this? We've got to put something in English here. And somebody came up with the bright idea of uh, the Hebrew word for uh, Lord, Adonai, has vowel points under it. They slid the vowel points from Adonai under Yahweh, and you get Jehovah. It's a man-made word. And uh, I always tell, tell my Jehovah's Witnesses folks, go look it up. Google it. They never come back and say, yeah, you were right. But it, <laughs> but it, but it is. Uh, <laughs> so God, you know, Pharaoh won't let him go. And so Moses does all these miracles with his staff, and Pharaoh's magicians replicate every one of the miracles, which is a reminder to you and me that there are other powers and principalities at work in the world other than just the power of God. Satan can do miracles, and he can do false things to make. And so apparently that's what's going on here, except they can't duplicate one thing that Moses does. He, they can't duplicate the gnats. I don't know why. So next time you, you get those gnats or anything, just thank God that's probably no demonic activity there. Uh, but be careful about everything else. Well, it takes a final uh, miracle to get the Hebrews out of Egyptian slavery. The Passover when the angel of death literally passes over the Israelites, but the angel of death slays the firstborn of all the Egyptians. Now, as the angel's going through the community, how does he know who's in what house and, and what the Israelites do so that they don't get, you know, the firstborn sl slain? Remember what they did? They put blood on their doorpost. Again, that's foreshadowing the shedding of blood by Christ one day. That's why um, sometimes in the communion liturgy we'll say, Christ, our Passover lamb, is sacrificed for us. And he becomes that perfect uh, sacrifice. In the Old Testament sacrificial system, it says over and over again, 
bring a, a bull or a ram or a lamb without defect. Now, I used to work on a dairy out in Leon Valley with uh, 800 head of Holsteins, and we had some really, really nice cows, but none of them were perfect. I mean, uh, there's no such thing as an animal without defect. Um, and yet that's God's standard. So they brought the best they could find uh, to uh, the Lord, except Habakkuk, he warns it. Israelites started bringing all their, uh, calf broke his leg, let's take it into the church, you know, and use that for sacrifice. And Habakkuk calls them on the carpet, carpet for that. It's kind of like, you know, when you work at a church, people come, they want to donate the couch that the goodwill wouldn't take, or the church will take it. Yeah, so, uh, but anyway, there's no such thing as an animal that's totally perfect because all of creation is fallen. But again, that's a foreshadowing of the idea that only a perfect sacrifice can accomplish salvation. Problem is, there is no such thing until the Incarnation. This is why you got to sit down someday and get rid of that thing. It's in all of us. It's Satan's default mode on how you think about your salvation. I hope my good deeds outweigh my bad. So I'll try to do rack up a lot of good deeds. God's watching, and this will probably get me in. It doesn't matter how many good you could lead as perfect a life, you could make Billy Graham look like a tyrant. Mother Teresa looked like, and it doesn't get you any closer to eternal life than Paul Pot or Stalin. You, your good deeds cannot atone for anything. They're worse than the sacrificial system. Don't keep thinking, I did something really good today. I'm pretty sure that's going to get me in good with God. You're already in with God. You're already in. And Christ, the Passover lamb, he is the ultimate sacrifice because he is perfect. You've got our imperfect, heinous sin going up against this infinite God, but Christ steps in, takes our sin, and, you know, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says that Christ actually becomes sin for us. What does that mean? The only thing I can figure out, and I've said this in here before, forgive me, I invented a theological word to explain that. Here it is. That somehow Christ sucked all of the sin in the universe into his very being. How? I have no clue. How can a perfect, sinless being suddenly become sin? But I believe the word of God. And he takes that onto the cross. It's the ultimate sacrifice, and it is final. When Jesus cries out, his last words on the cross are, it is finished. Boom. So the Old Testament sacrificial system totally goes out the window. There are some sects of Christian faith. We had a custodian here 40 years ago. He was in one of those. Uh, it comes out of Brazil, and they believe in Jesus, but they 
practice the Old Testament sacrificial system on a small scale. They think that that's perpetual. No. I'll tell you a funny story. <laughs> when I was pastor in Dallas, we, uh, one of my associate pastors was Kenyan, an African guy. And we had an African, con- we still do have an African congregation, an African service in Swahili with about 800 Africans, not African-Americans, but Africans from 11 different nations worship at Highland Park Press. Well, early, and they have once a month, they have an evangelistic event where they invite their friends to worship. Then they have a big feast afterwards, and they cook a goat in the ground, and that's a big Kenyan delicacy. So (laughs) early on in the beginning of that congregation, Saturday night, I've gone over my sermon. There's enough. I'm falling asleep from it, and I'm going to bed, and the phone rings, and it's Cyprian Gucciandra, my associate pastor. Ron, you've got to come. They've put some of our members in jail. So, so I go down the <laughs> and this, I guess this must have been their first evangelistic event. So they didn't know that you could buy cabrito already slaughtered, ready to put in the ground. They bought a live goat. They took it into one of their guys' apartments. Now, have you ever heard a goat being, having his throat slit? They're not quiet. This bo- goat is screaming. People are calling 911 all over the apartment. <laughs> the cops come. Boom, they see blood all over the place. They have these guys down on the ground. <laughs> and they haul them in. So I had to explain to the police. <laughs> and the cops, don't they know they can buy that? So they, they never did it again. But uh, it was a night to remember. But it also gave me insight into the Old Testament sacrifice. I mean, it was gross. There was blood all over their bathroom and out on the floor. And I thought, gosh, this is every day multiplied by 100 in the temple or the tabernacle before they built the temple. And again, it, it just you know, drives home uh, the grossness of our sin. And the innocent always suffer. Um, so here's Christ. He becomes the final sacrifice, and he is the fulfillment of all prophecy, but especially of that. All the Old Testament sacrificial system is doing is foreshadowing the need for a blood sacrifice that's ultimate, final, and perfect. And the Israelites that understood that were looking for a Messiah who would come. Um, but what happens on the cross? Well, we know Jesus got you know, spikes nailed through probably his wrists, because if he did in the hands, it would probably rip through. And we know he was pierced with a spear, and blood and water come out. Um, but what really happened? 2 Corinthians 5.21, he became sin. I don't know how. Some, but it's something cosmic happened on the cross that defies explanation, defies human philosophy, theology. It's far greater. Uh, I grew up hearing about Christ died, took my place on the cross. Oh, I'm glad I don't have to do that. But it didn't dawn on me till well into the ministry that I couldn't do that. I mean, even if I said, well, 
Christ, I don't want you to do that. I'm willing to go and die the death on the cross. It wouldn't do diddly to atone for my sin. I'm an imperfect. It couldn't do as much as the Old Testament sacrifice system. I could hang on a cross a gazillion times, and I'd still wind up in hell. So it's more than him just, well, I'm letting you off the hook, and I'm going to do it for you so you don't have any pain. But No. On the cross, Christ does for you and me what we could not do, cannot do, and will never be able to do. On the cross, Christ accomplishes the once for all, final, perfect, infinite sacrifice. No more needs to be added. This is one of the beefs the reformers had with the Roman mass. Now, I have Catholic friends. I grew up in a half-Catholic family, so I kind of know the drill. And when I was a kid, I mean, I was told, you know, explicitly that every Sunday Christ is sacrificed. It's a re-sacrifice of Christ. Um, I have Roman Catholic friends that say that is not true. We don't believe that. And I have Catholic friends that say, yes, that is true. Um, the Reformers wanted to get that out of there. Um, I mean, if Christ said it is finished, then what more can be added to it? Nothing. In fact, every time my Roman Catholic friends say, I'm going to the Mass and receive the sacrifice, of, I say, well... I'm not sure he's really happy about that. You know, in the Presbyterian Church, this is why we don't have an altar. Occasionally people say, Ron, I was up, uh, you know, I want to go down there and take a picture of the altar. I always say, there's no altar. An altar is what you sacrifice something on. That went out the window with the Reformers. We have a communion table. Now, we do believe, as Presbyterians, the real presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper. Most Presbyterians don't understand that. We're uh, not like Baptists. Baptists believe communion is a memorial to what happened way back there. And Jim Dennison, one of my best friends, I always say, Jim, memorials are for dead people. Jesus is alive. So, now, Roman Catholics, after Aquinas, they wanted to try to define philosophically how is Christ present? So they came up with transubstantiation that the wafer and the wine actually without losing its accidents, the way it looks and smells and tastes, it becomes a real flesh and the real blood of Christ. Luther didn't like that. He came up with consubstantiation. Somehow the real presence of Christ is around, over, and underneath the elements. Calvin, I think, is the smartest of the reformers. And he said, this is a cosmic mystery that the human mind cannot fathom. We shouldn't try to figure it out. We should just bow before it in worship. And that's, that's the official Presbyterian stance. So if you're ever in a Catholic church and you go to the priest and say, can I take communion? I'm a Presbyterian. He will usually ask you, do you believe the real presence? Say, yeah. And he'll probably say, okay, fine. Um, I've had that happen. and I've never been turned down once in the Catholic church to take communion. Um, and that's why we shy away from the crucifix. And I'm not sure we should. I think we threw a little of the baby out with the bathwater. Um, 
you rarely, if any, I, I don't think I've ever been in a Presbyterian church where up front there's a crucifix. Now, we do have scenes of the crucifixion at Highland Park Press. We have a whole window with Christ hanging on the cross. Um, we have, try to count how many crosses are in our sanctuary sometime. You know, if, if uh, maybe you're not tracking the sermon, go, okay, I'm going to come up with how many crosses. There won't be enough time. You will run out of time before you come up with all the crosses. They're all over the place. Uh, I used to have a cross hanging in my office. Uh, it's Christ on the cross, but he's not on the cross. He's not nailed. He's got a crown on. He's got a regal robe. It's called the Christ of the, Christ the King cross. And he's, he's risen. And I think that's very appropriate. But I think there ought to be one day of the year when you and I get a crucifix, and look at it. Anybody, can anybody think what day that I might be thinking of? Good Friday. Good Friday. You know, we tend to, as Protestants, to sanitize the cross. There was nothing, you know how gory that sacrificial system was? Google 1986, JAMA, that's Journal of the American Medical Association, article, Crucifixion of Christ. You can do it right now. You will read by two doctors who anatomically, and it would never be published today, we're still in the vestiges of Christendom back in 1986, but you will be shocked. When I was a little kid, I, you know, I, I wanted to be a strong man. You know, I, I, if, if I could design Jesus, he was going to be 6'4", 240, you know, and play linebacker for the Washington Redskins. And um, the part I didn't like of the Bible was it says that Jesus fell carrying his cross, and they had to get Simon the Cyrene to carry for him. I remember thinking, what a wimp. You know, why couldn't he carry his own cross? After you read that article, you'll understand. He'd already been beaten to within an inch of his life. But it's, it's I don't want to say scripture glosses over it, but it just quickly moves through the, the beating. And the classic Ro Roman beating involved, you know, a number of whacks with rods. But then the, 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 the piece de la resistance was uh, they, would, they had a cat of nine tails, leather thongs. And you think, oh, they whipped him with it. No, they didn't whip him with it. On the end of each thong was a piece of glass or jagged metal or something, a nail. And they would whip, so it would around their body. Then they would pull it like a cheese grater. So Christ was, you talk about gross. They go into all that in that article. And you see the suffering that, that Christ went through. And your sin and mine caused that innocent, totally innocent God-man to suffer. But it's final. So we don't have altars. We don't have crucifixes. But it's not bad to look at a crucifix to be reminded, wow, he went through that for me. And I'm totally undeserving of that. So 
we don't like to talk about the wrath of God, but I'm trying to get you guys to make a commitment to read through the Bible every year, and you'll get a full-orbed picture of God. We want a God who's a cross between Santa Claus, Big Bird, and everybody's grandfather. Um, And people come to me that read through the Bible, they usually come and say, oh, I hit this. I mean, I am upset when Korah, whoever he was, he, he does something against God, and God opens the earth, and he and his whole family are swallowed up. What's wrong with you? You know, I, or um, Uzzah, they're bringing the ark into Jerusalem. It's on a cart. God said, nobody touches the ark, not even the priests. They had poles through it. They could touch the poles, but nobody touches the ark. And Uzzah's walking alongside the ark, and the thing hits a rock and tips the the ark's going to fall off the cart. Uzzah puts his hand up there to steady it, and God strikes him dead. That makes me mad. It made David mad. David's re- David rails out at God. These are instances where the wrath of God breaks through, and I don't like it. But when you read the Bible, you need to realize that what you get is a God who, who is angular. He's not smooth and soft. He's angular, and he will not be domesticated. He will not be declawed or defanged. And yet, he goes to the cross for you and me and dies a real death and go experiences hell, total separation from the Father. Again, if Jesus is God, how can he be separate? I don't know, other than whatever hell is, Christ experienced it. And he's taken God's wrath on himself. God is a perfectly just God. All sin, all injustice must be accounted for, paid for fully. He doesn't go, well, I'm going to forgive your student loan. No. By the way, you know who's paying for student loan? They got to be paid for. I'm paying for somebody's student loan. So they went to graduate school at Harvard. Well, all sin must be paid for. And God's wrath focuses down, not on you and me, on the cross, on his own son, and takes all that into him. So you and I don't need, we need to have a healthy fear of God in terms of a reverential awe at his power and his majesty. But we never need fear that he's going to go... Or you're going to hell. No. And it's out of his love that Jesus becomes the Passover lamb. Because in the old words of the old Michael Card song, he really would rather die than live without you and me. That, that's the message of the gospel. That's the good news. Um, God's wrath is real, but it's been fully satisfied on the cross. But his love is even more real. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son as a Passover lamb that we might be saved. I mean, folks, the gospel is the greatest news in the world because we, back to that Old Testament dilemma question, how can sinful humanity possibly stand in the presence of of a holy God. 
Well, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Now we can stand in his presence. You know, uh, in the book of Esther, uh, you know, there's a, it's one of the first genocides where they, they're going to wipe out the Jews. Esther's a Jew. The, her husband, the king, doesn't know that. And Mordecai, her uncle, said, you know, maybe God's placed you here for a purpose to go in there and head this thing off. Why don't you go in and tell the king not to do this? And there was a law that said if you ever went into the throne room of the king unannounced, he could kill you unless he extends the golden scepter. So Esther says, well, you know, this could cost me my life. And Mordecai goes, well, (laughs) we're going to do it. A lot of people are going to die if you aren't willing to try. So she prays up and walks in there, and it says the king extends her the golden scepter. I'm sure she went, with you and me and our relationship with God, because of that sacrifice of Christ, that it's finished, you never have to worry. The golden scepter is always held out to you. That when you and I die or when Christ returns and we go into the fulfilled kingdom, into the unveiled glorious presence of Jesus and the Trinity. And how that works, I don't know either. But it's true. But the golden scepter will be there. We don't have to worry. Am I going to make it or not? No, if you've banked your life and death and eternal life on the once for all sufficient, perfect, infinite sacrifice, then you can have the guarantee you're home free. Um, Nothing in my hand I bring, only to thy cross I cling. I'm gonna, I've put this up here before. I want to do it one last time because I had a, uh, an elder in our church say, you know, I came to Christ, Ron, in youth group when you did this. And so I don't want anybody here, just in case somebody's in here still thinking, well, maybe there's something I can do. Um, you know, here's, here's God. Over here, he doesn't look like that. <laughs> and, you know, with, with Adam and Eve, there was a perfect harmony. They were together. And then when sin broke that relationship, it put Adam and Eve over here. Whoops. And there's a chasm in between. Now, the thing you need to realize is that's an infinite chasm. Infinite. And when I was giving this youth group talk, I said, think of the Grand Canyon. That's the biggest canyon in the United States. It's about a mile across. And let's say you wanted to get to the other side. Um, So you think, well, I'll train and become a long jumper. And maybe I can, uh, that's your only option. You can't do the evil Knievel thing with a motorcycle or you can't get a helicopter. You've got to figure out how to run and get across that canyon. So you're thinking, well, that's stupid. I, I'd get, what, 15 feet out? and well, Let's say we get the Olympic long jump champion. I don't know who that is now. I think the record is like 38 feet or something. Let's say we get him to try to get, 
Tom, you're, you're shaking your head. No. Okay. Well, let's say 29. So you get the guy who's... Now, who has the most probability of getting across the Grand Canyon? Bob Beeman or me? <laughs> Chuck? That reminds me of the pastor is doing a children's sermon. He brings the kids up, and he says, well, what's gray and furry, has a bushy tail, and gathers nuts in the winter. Little boy raises his hand and says, well, I know the answer is Jesus, but it sounds like a squirrel to me. Uh, so, so anyway, so Bob, Bob Beeman, I, I jump, and I get 15 feet out, and I wind out in the bottom. Bob Beeman gets 29 feet out, but where does he wind up? I mean, he's, whoa, hey, Bob. No way. But you... Meanwhile, God's over here, don't jump, don't jump. And he sends his son, Jesus, that's the cross. Jesus becomes the bridge. And you and I don't have to jump. We just trust Christ, take his hand, and he leads us back into full, restored relationship with God through his once-for-all sufficient, perfect sacrifice. No amount of good works, no, trying hard, trying to be a better Christian. You know, Tim Keller has a great quote. I can never, you know, we're, we're more sinful than we ever dared imagine. But we're also more loved by God than we ever dared believe. Both of those are true. That's that simo justus et peccator. We're more loved by God while we're still yet sinners. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So um, you don't have to run around carrying a bunch, a load of guilt all the time. Maybe I need to do something to atone. No, it's all been atoned for. Embrace. Uh, no more sacrifice needs to be made. <clears throat> okay, we're out of time. Uh, next week, I'll be back, and we're going to take a look at... Um, I believe it's the foreshadow. David is the foreshadowing of the coming Messiah. Yeah, the Messianic promise to David. So work through your prayers and your uh, scripture readings, and we'll talk about um, how God's revelation to David previews the coming Messiah. Let me let me close this in a word of prayer. Lord God, we thank you that it is finished. At the same time, Lord, I confess that I forget about that all the time. And I think, well, there must be something I've got to do. Lord, remind us that the only thing we bring to our relationship with you is our sin. And we don't have to be afraid about that. We don't have to be afraid that we'll be punished or squashed, or anything else. You've already dealt with our sin. We just leave it at the foot of the cross and try to be more like Christ. And so, Lord, remind each one of us that your Holy Spirit, because we've accepted Christ, has taken up residence in us. Therefore, we can live better than we do. And when we don't, 
May your Holy Spirit convict us of our sin. May we keep short accounts with you, lay it at the foot of the cross again, and go on with our lives. We thank you that we don't have to carry a load of guilt around with us always. It's been dealt with. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You know, I just thought of a great illustration of, you know, as a pastor, people come in my office and they're carrying tremendous loads of guilt, and I try to help them realize it's been taken care of. Do you remember a movie probably 35 years ago called The Mission? about Roman Catholic missionaries who go into, I guess it was Brazil or something, and they, also the conquistadors go in there with them. The conquistadors are not very nice guys. They're running the natives through with lances. The missionaries are trying to stop them from doing that. And the head of the conquistadors finally comes to his senses, realizes what he's done is wrong, and actually resigns and joins and becomes a monk with the priests. Um, and all of his armor he takes and puts in a sack. And he drags, he feels like he needs to do penance. So he's dragging that armor with him all the time. And there's a scene, it's a beautifully filmed movie. And these priests and monks, they're climbing up this waterfall, beautiful waterfall. And it's dangerous. And the guy's climbing with his sack of his armor. And he's endangering those behind him. Um, and one of the priests ha- gets a sword from somewhere and goes, and cuts the sack. And the sack opens and all the armor cascades down hundreds of feet. And it's a beautiful illustration of our being relieved of, of our guilt and our sin. Um, so if you've never seen the movie The Mission, it's, it's worth watching. Okay, we're dismissed. Have a great week.